0: Good to see you. It's a, it's a great Sunday to, to be expounding upon God's transforming, abiding, and life-giving word. And uh, I want to remind you, we're in Esther chapter 5 and 6. This is our fifth of a sermon series of seven. And it's, a big, it's a big chunk of scripture to bite off, and we're going to actually read chapter 5 um, and 6 uh, throughout the sermon. just thought it would be a little bit more cohesive than having somebody come up here and... Um, have to take oxygen between paragraphs and try to read it all. Um, I also want to remind you that um, if you are new with us or you've been with us for a while and you've missed a sermon along the way, um, listen in. Um, it's um, God's Word is God's Word. Um, if you have God's Spirit, you can understand it. But a narrative like this really takes some explaining and some teaching, and um, you can't just drop into the middle of it and expect to know what's going on. So I want to encourage you to go back, at the very least, and read it. And at the very most, um, uh, listen or watch the last few sermons. I've titled today's sermon in chapters 5 and 6 of Esther, um, Fighting a Defeated Enemy, an enemy that is defeated. Esther and Mordecai are the main characters in this drama, in this true drama. Um, Haman, the enemy, and King Xerxes are secondary characters. Esther and Mordecai are, Jew- are Jews living incognito in the Persian Empire, which is the all of the known world at that time, with the exception of maybe Greece and uh, some other pockets of population. It, ex- it extends from uh, Ethiopia to India. It includes 127 provinces. Mordecai had a position inside the government Um, He sat at the gate post, uh, at the the king's gate, excuse me, in his post. And beautiful Esther was inside the kingdom. She won the grace and favor of King Ahasuerus, or King Xerxes, and she was crowned Queen Esther. Four years after she was crowned, in chapter 2, verse 16, Mordecai got wind of an assassination attempt. And he told Esther, the queen, about the assassination, and queen told the king about the assassination, and she told him in Mordecai's name. It was investigated and the eunuchs, uh, I think it's uh, Bagthana and Teresh, the eunuchs, were found to be guilty and they were executed. We're told that this event, this assassination attempt, like many other events in the kingdom, was recorded in the book of the King's Chronicles. We see that in chapter 2, verse 23, um, which is a diary of sorts. And Mordecai, though, was not recognized or honored for his righteous deed. And the record of his righteous deed would just gather dust until God was ready to to have the book of the Chronicles opened up. And we're going to see it opened up um, today in chapter 5. When Mordecai's deed was not recognized, Haman the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, that's important, was promoted by the king to a rank that was above all the king's officials. And the king commanded that all bow down and respect Haman. All did in fact bow down to Haman and respect him except for one man and that's Mordecai the Jew and this lone dissenter Mordecai infuriated Haman so he, do- he sought to destroy not only Mordecai but Mordecai's people all the people throughout all of his people throughout the entire Persian Empire Haman as we already know and we're going to continue to see is a liar and he's a deceiver and he'll do anything to make sure that his power his control and And he has a power and control and respect of everyone. Did I say that he hated the Jewish people? That he hated God's people? So he convinced the king that there was a certain people, an unnamed people that were scattered about the empire that were not worth tolerating. So the king told Haman to do what he pleased with this unnamed group of people. So an edict went out to all 127 provinces on Passover Eve, to annihilate all, the, all this, this certain people group, which happened to be the Jews, but the king doesn't know it's the Jews because Haman is a liar and a deceiver. And this, this decree that went out on Passover Eve was to annihilate all the Jews, um, old and young, men and women, children and adults, um, 11 months from the edict. Mordecai, understandably, was deeply distressed. He sent a copy of the decree to Esther and he commanded her to go to the king to beg for his favor and plead with him on behalf of of her people. Remember, remember, up until this time, nobody knows that Esther is a Jew. She initially declined this command or declined this invitation to go to the king because she knew it meant certain death for her. She said this. She said, everyone knows that if any man or woman goes before the king inside the inner court without being invited or called, there's but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live she said furthermore the king has not called me to his quarters for 30 days that he's calling other concubines to his quarters but he's lost interest it seems to be for 30 days he's lost interest in esther mordecai responded sent her one last message saying in essence you can do nothing and die or you can truly live by taking a risk to mediate for your people god's people Mordecai said, if you, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the, for the Jews from another place. He proclaimed the gospel because he, knows, he believes the promise of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that God is going to bring forth a Messiah who will bless all people. So he proclaims the gospel saying that, that salvation will come from somebody else if it doesn't come from you, Esther. God is going to save his people regardless of what you do. But he said to Esther, but maybe you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther weighed his words and then she snapped out of her hidden identity and was resolved to stand with her God and to stand with her people and go to the king even if it's against the law and even if it means that she perishes. She knew the odds were stacked against her, so she called for the Jews in the city to fast for her and fast with her for three days and three nights today in chapter 5 and 6 we see esther approach the king and we see god working behind the scenes in ways that i know will strengthen our faith there's four scenes scene number one is from chapter 5 verses 1 through 8 and it's knowing and defeating our enemy scene number two chapter 5 verses 9 through 11 the enemy hates you number three six one through eleven the hidden providential hand of god in the fourth fourth scene, chapter six, verses twelve through fourteen, victory is assured for God's people. A few questions to ponder. Are you aware that you're that you have a defeated enemy? You have an enemy, and he's already been defeated. Are you aware that your enemy hates you? Are you trusting in the hidden loving providence of God? And number four, are you living inside the reality that your victory? has already been purchased, has already been won. Let's read chapter five together. <clears throat> did I reread chapter five? That's one of the problems with, with three services. I'm going. To like, did I just read that? I didn't even mark it. Here we go. On the third day, Esther put on her royal, royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen, es- Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman come, to today, come today to a feast that I prepared for the king. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your request? It shall be granted to you. What is your wish? And it shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, my wish and my request is, if I found favor, in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared, and tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, Let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had a gallows made. Scene number one, know and defeat your enemy. Chapter five, verses one through eight. Esther knew that the odds were stacked against her. Uninvited guests to the king were killed for approaching him. On top of that, he hasn't wanted to see her for 30 days. Finally, there is an enemy who wants to destroy God's people, and she understands the way that the enemy works. The odds were stacked against her. They were actually impossible. But these odds drove her to a deep resolve and dependence upon the Lord, the only one who could defeat the enemy and save God's people. So she prayed, and she fasted for three days and three nights, asking God for wisdom and favor. And when the fast was over, she showed up in the inner court of the king's palace, hoping that he would hold out the scepter to her. In a Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary on the book of Esther, it says the following, Esther's three days in fasting are compared to the three days that Jonah spent inside the belly of a fish. They're also connected to the three days of agony that Abraham spent believing he'd have to kill Isaac. Midrash, excuse me, redemption, the Midrash tells us, comes on the third day. But let's not rush to the redemption yet. Because those three days uh, that she spent fasting and praying deserve our attention. They were more than likely a time of not just um, abstaining from food and drink, but they were a time of torment and agony for Esther. Abraham's burden must have left him sleepless and weary, knowing that God called him to kill his only son. Jonah's days inside the fish surely turned him into a horrific vision. I doubt that he emerged unscathed. I imagine him bruised and tattered, his skin inflamed with all the horrible things happening inside of the fish's digestive tract. We see Esther approach the king, not dressed seductively as a member of his harem, but dressed, dressed in her royal robes with the confidence of her royal position. Even in her royal garments, she was more than likely tired and weary because of the last 3 days and most likely didn't look her best. She slowly approached the king. I imagine them making eye, talk, eye contact with one another. And she waited, which, which must seem to an eternity for him to hold out the scepter. And he did. He held it out. Her life is spared. She touched it. And now she can move on to her request. The request to ask him for the favor and to plead for the lives of her people. And it says, after she touched the tip of the scepter, the queen addressed her as Queen Esther for the first time. And he asked her in verse 3, What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther responded, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come to the feast I have prepared for the king. And the king said, Bring Haman quickly, do as Esther has asked. So they came to the feast. In verse 6-8, They're at the feast she prepared, and the king asks again, What is your wish, and what is your request? And Esther responded, my wish and my request. She paused. Verse 7, if I have found favor in the sight of the king and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. 24 hours from now, 24 hours from this moment, in chapter 7, we'll talk about this next week, Esther will finally plead for her people and we'll see the king's response. Through all of this, Esther does not follow Mordecai's instructions precisely. He commanded her and told her simply to go to the king, beg for his favor, and plead with him on behalf of her people. She's already had two chances to make her plea. Standing in front of the king in his throne room, and now at the first feast. So why does Esther pass on these two chances to present her petition to the king? I don't know. The narrator doesn't tell us. A couple of explanations could be uh, the following, uh, that uh, that she understands that Haman is a cunning enemy and she wanted him to be there for the accusation so that he would not have the opportunity to form some type of conspiracy. He's already done that. And also by the time the king shows up at the second banquet in chapter 7, verse 2, he will have already promised her or asked her three times that what is your request? I'll give it to you. So Esther is aware of the tactics of the enemy of her people and she moves swiftly to expose his lies and his cunning plan to destroy her and God's people. So question, how well do you know the strategy of your enemy who hates you and wants to destroy you? Esther knows her enemy and is resolved to defeat him. But the enemy, as we're going to see, is a step ahead of her. All seems hopeless, but what Esther doesn't yet understand is that Haman is already defeated. And he doesn't stand a chance to defeat God's people. Scene number two, the enemy hates you. And scene two is framed by Haman leaving a feast joyfully in verse 9, and him going to a feast in verse 14 joyfully. In verses 9 through 12, we saw that the the king had previously bestowed all the power and wealth of the kingdom to Haman. If you remember back to chapter 2, he gave uh, Haman his signet ring. And he could actually make edicts on the king's behalf. He had all the power and wealth of the kingdom, but that was not enough for Haman. He had an insatiable need to be worshipped and admired by other people. So we see him with a joyful and glad heart, skipping out of the feast with Esther and the king. And suddenly he comes across, across Mordecai the Jew, sitting at the king's gate. And we're told that Mordecai neither rises nor trembles at the presence of Haman. And we see that Haman is filled with wrath. Yet somehow he restrains himself. He walks by Mordecai and he goes home. And upon his arrival, he calls his wife Zeresh and his friends and he recounts to them the splendors of his riches, the numbers of his sons, as if he had something to do with the numbers of his sons. He, he recounts his promotion to the second in charge and finally he recounts how Queen Esther invited no one but him to dine with her and the king. And tomorrow's going to be even better because Queen Esther asked me to come back to a second feast. Just me with the king and the queen. Anybody ever heard of Brian Regan? He is a comedian that, I think he's a Christian, but he's clean. And he's got this spiel called the me monster. This me monster where he talks about going to a party and right after you have two wisdom teeth pulled and you're talking to somebody that, uh, you're talking to a, you walk up to a group that's, that's centered around one person that's talking and you walk in and they ask you what's wrong and say, I just had two wisdom teeth pulled. And this guy that's doing all the talking says, that's nothing. I had four wisdom teeth pulled. He starts telling he's the me monster. It's all about me, myself, and I. And Haman is very much the me monster. He doesn't, want to, he doesn't care about what anybody else thinks. He wants the adoration and the worship, all eyes and attention on him. Um, Ian Duguid writes this. Haman is a case study in what happens in our hearts when our idols are challenged. He made public recognition his idol, and the result was that as long as he was receiving adulation, he felt great. However, when the achievement of his goal was challenged, he responded by lashing out in rage and seeking to feed his idol through boasting. There was a void at the center of his life that no amount of success could fill. You see, Haman can't be happy with all he has as long as he has a lone dissenter. As long as one person won't worship him. He can't be satisfied while Mordecai the Jew is alive and retains his official position at the king's gate. Praise, honor, and respect of others is what gets Haman up in the morning. And people like this surround themselves with others who feed their narcissistic ego. People in power um, with this type of ego attract followers who will ignore bad character and suck up to the person in power as long as they can benefit in some way from his position. This is the, this is the case with Haman's wives and with, with his so-called friends. So his, in verses 13 and 14, his wife and his so-called friends say, if Mordecai's in the way, if he doesn't show you respect, why wait for 11 months to wipe him out and all the Jewish people? Get rid of them now. Build a gallows that's, 70, that's 50 cubits high, which is 75 feet high, and tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. And then they say, Go joyfully with the king to the feast. Build the gallows to kill Mordecai, then go joyfully to the king, uh, with the king to the feast. And it says at the end of verse 14 this idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows built. Here's what the gallows are it's not a rope around the neck, it's a 75 foot stake that they build some kind of ladder or stairway up 80 feet and carry um, Mordecai up and they throw him down on the stake and impale him. And he dies from that puncture through the middle of his body and then he stays there until the birds have pecked out his eyes and eaten every bit of flesh off his body. Just so you know what hanging means, the gallowsman. We should pray that the Lord would root out the sin of idolatry in our own hearts. Not, that, not that, so the birds don't peck our eyes out, but so that we can bring glory and honor to the Lord. We should pray that the Lord would root out the sin of idolatry in our hearts and in the hearts of those who lead in our homes, in our churches, and in our countries. Haman served the idol of respect and admiration, and he would do anything to make sure he received it. So when, as we hear what Haman did that night that decree to build the gallows, we've got got to wonder uh, at this point in the story if Esther will even be successful in pleading with her people. She postponed her request until the next evening, but it looks as though Haman will beat her to the king and Mordecai will be executed by impaling before she can reach the king. This whole time, Esther is unaware of the danger, and even if she was, there's nothing she could do about it. No human agency had the ability to influence what happens next. We're going to read a succession of extraordinary coincidences in which the hidden hand of God is most evidently working. Whatever odds that you're experiencing in your life right now, whatever odds that you feel like we're up against in our country, in our world right now, I pray you're encouraged and you're reminded that God is always working. And He is never sleeping. I also hope that you enjoy the humor in chapter 6. Karen Jobes calls chapter 6 arguably the most ironically comical scene in the entire Bible. If my voice will hold out, let me read chapter 6. In Esther, right? On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, "Nothing uh, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let robes be brought which the king has worn and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes of the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's date, gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife and Zarish and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zarish said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him you will surely fall before him. Scene number three, chapter six, verses one through 11, the providential hand of God. Verses one through three, on that night, the night after the first banquet, and the night that Haman had the gallows built to impale Mordecai, the next, uh, uh, the king forgot to take his melatonin and he couldn't sleep, and he asked the eunuchs to play reruns of the kingdom's most memorable events, the chronicles. And of all the volumes, all the volumes of chronicles on the shelves, it just so happened that Xerxes' staff turned to the page of the failed assassination attempt, where Mordecai overheard the ploy, told Esther, uh, Esther told the king in Mordecai's name, and the affair was investigated, and the two guilty conspirators were hung. You see, Persian empires, like other rulers in the time of antiquity, made sure that they recognized and they rewarded loyalty. After all, that would encourage more loyalty. In the same way as punishing disloyalty would warn others to be, not be disloyal. So we asked if Mordecai had been honored for his heroic and selfless ask, uh, 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 heroic and selfless deed. Yet nothing was done to recognize Mordecai's righteousness at that time. It was all but forgotten. It was closed in the king's annals forever. In verses 4 through 5, while the king's insomnia awakened him to the fact that Mordecai had not been honored, Haman probably had a restless or sleepless night of his own. He was up early and he couldn't wait to hear that alarm go off, run to the king, and ask the king to impale Mordecai. So we have a classic scene where the king is looking to honor Mordecai and Haman is looking to execute him. Neither knows what the other one is up to. All along, God is hidden and he's working. Haman, like Esther before him, stood before the king that morning. However, she was there to plead for the life of the Jewish people while Haman was there to ask for the death of a Jewish man named Mordecai. At the beginning of verse 6, the king invited Haman in. And the narrator doesn't report any type of greeting or any type of small talk. And before Haman could say, kill Mordecai, the king asks, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Oh, wait a minute. The request to hang Mordecai can wait just a few minutes. The king is talking my love language. He says to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So certain that he was the man the king delights to honor, and fascinated with the phrase that he repeats it out loud this time. For the man the king delights to honor. and You can just imagine pictures of admiration, people bowing down, Mordecai hung on the stake, he's in the king's robes, riding the king's horse, being led through town, and people shouting, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then verses 8 and 9, Mordecai, or excuse me, Haman goes on to describe how it is that the king should treat the man he delights to honor, assuming, right, that the king is referring to him. And he says, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Notice that Haman does not, mention, um, does not mention giving wealth or power to the man the king delights to honor. Haman already has all that. He already has all the wealth and power of the kingdom. What he's missing is praise and adulation. He wants adoration. He has an insatiable appetite for it. And things could not have been better for him. The gallows have been built to hang Mordecai and Haman is getting ready to be clothed with the king's robes and ride his horse and be publicly praised in all the city. Then in an instant, before Haman could respond, the king who thought it was a great idea said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horses you've said and I can just see Haman go, this is my time, this is it, this is what I've been waiting for. And then he goes on and continues, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the gate and leave out nothing as you have said, Haman. What just happened? A turn of events. Think about how humiliating this was for Haman. He had to have turned pale white. Not only did he have to dress Mordecai with the king's robes, not only did he have to help him up on the king's horse, he had to lead him through the city. Walking while Mordecai is on the horse. And Haman's proclaiming about Mordecai. Thus shall it be done to the man on the horse whom the king delights to honor. So here we see a righteous man headed to the gallows being exalted. And an evil man wanting to destroy God's people being humiliated and his end is death. Does any of that sound familiar? It's important to remember that the edict to slaughter a certain people is still hanging in the air. Even in the midst of all this, the king does not yet know that these people consigned to destruction are the Jewish people, the people of God, Haman's enemies. But nothing can derail God's promises to his people. Do you believe that today? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing can, will keep you from being brought all the way home. And then we see in scene 4, verses 12-14, through 14, chapter 6, sure victory over the enemy. After Mordecai's exaltation, it says he simply returned to the king's gate. Nothing is said of Mordecai's reaction to the honors. He isn't like high-fiving or chest-bumping like, dude, that was great. You just like wore the king's robes and you were on the king's horse. He goes back to work. He's dropped off at his post. On the other hand, Haman, who just experienced a living nightmare of seeing his nemesis honored instead of him, was humiliated. He was embarrassed. He covered his head, and he ran home. This time was a little bit different when he arrived home. There was no bragging. He told his wife and his friends everything that had happened to him. And now the narrator describes these friends As wise men, they're no longer friends in their response to him. They're no longer friends and they're wisely jumping off of Haman's bandwagon. In verse 13, Haman's wife and the wise men spoke these chilling words to Haman. If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. This hopeless decree for God's enemies is a hopeful promise for God's people then and God's people today. Nothing can ultimately overcome the people of God. But here's the deal. That if you don't know Jesus, if you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, if you're not God's people, but one of God's people, that you're an enemy, but a remind you that God came to save enemies, to make enemies friends. So Haman's end is destruction. And the end for everyone that does not put their, their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is destruction as well. But if you know Jesus, this promise. That nothing can happen to God's people is for you and it elicits hope. God and his people win in the end. If you are born again, you are forever his child. All of his enemies, however, will be defeated once and for all when he comes to judge the living and the dead. Then verse 14, after those chilling words came out of the mouth of Zeresh, and these wise men, at that very moment, the doorbell rang, the eunuchs arrived, and they hastened Haman to a feast with the queen and the king. Haman is no longer in control of his life. And we're going to see that next week in chapter 7. I've got a few closing observations for you. You and I have an enemy. It's not your spouse. It's not your coworker. It's not a politician. It's not somebody from another political party or a different political view. Your enemy is not even those who are opposed to our God. Your enemy is Satan. And it's your sin. My sin. And so we need to know that we have an enemy, that our enemy is defeated. And we need to know also, though, that our defeated enemy still hates you. His name is Satan. His aim is to tempt you and I to worship other gods rather than the one true God. His aim is to deceive you and to drive you to little g gods of respect and honor and wealth and control. And he will lie to you and deceive you into trying to put your hope and your peace and your contentment in God's good creation rather than the good creator. At the end of the day, he can't destroy you. He's been defeated. He can't cause you to lose your salvation, but he can destroy or hinder your walk with the Lord. And he does that by tempting you to trust in anything, in anybody but Jesus for your ultimate salvation, peace, comfort, and hope. He is a defeated enemy. I want to say it again so we don't fear him, but we should have a growing awareness that he hates you And we should have a growing awareness of his schemes and his strategies. We should also know that he's on a leash. That he can only go as far as God will let him go. 1 Peter says in 5, chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. So we have an enemy, but he's defeated. But he still hates us. We have another enemy. And that enemy is sinned. It's so easy to see the sins of other people as greater than our own sin. Genesis 4, 7, God says, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you and you must rule over it. In Romans 8, 13, Paul says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body and you will live. John, John Owen, the Puritan, wrote a little 86-page book several centuries ago called the mortification of sin in believers. Mortified means to kill and it's an exposition on Romans 8.13. And he summarizes Romans 8.13 as this. This might be one of my next tattoos. Be killing, I only have one by the way. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. The enemy of sin is defeated in the believer. It has no ultimate power over us. But we need to know it's there. And the best way to know it's there is to spend time in God's Word because the Word is a mirror to our soul and it shows us. It reads us as we read it. So know uh, that your enemy is defeated. Know that your enemy hates you. And know and trust, number three, the providential hand of God. Know that our sovereign Lord is working, He's never sleeping, and He's always preserving His people. There's nothing that happens in your life that He doesn't see and that He doesn't have control over. God is aware, God is awake. And God is a working in your life, in this country, in this world right now. He is working everything out. And even when your plans fail, He's faithful. Even when you're faithless, He is faithful. And finally, know that your victory has been won. You have already been delivered from the domain of darkness and delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son. You're in. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You're fully loved. I want to remind you of one last thing. The battle is fought on our knees. The battle is fought through prayer and fasting. I want to remind you that our king has an open door policy. We can approach him at any time with confidence. Jesus is the scepter. And it's by his death and resurrection that all who trust in his finished work can approach the Father and know that the Father is always holding out the scepter. He opened the door to salvation and he keeps it open by interceding for us. And we now have access to the Father through prayer and his indwelling spirit. And one day we're going to be with him. We're going to be with people that have gone before us, believers like Suzanne Johnson, who is feasting right now where there's no more sin, there's no more enemy, and there's no more death. We'll be with all of our loved ones who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. Would you pray with me? God, we bless you. We thank you that you are faithful when we fail, when we are faithless. And God, I thank you that that the reality is is that the enemy has been defeated, um, even when we're not aware that he's prowling around. But God, I pray that we would better understand his strategies, that he knows that he cannot separate us from your love, but he also knows that we can, he can distract us. He can lie to us. He can deceive us. He can destroy, in a sense, our relationship with you, the intimacy that we were created to enjoy. So God, I pray that we would be aware that we have an enemy, a defeated enemy. And I pray that we'd be aware that, that we have an enemy that hates us, but more so that we'd be aware that we have a God who loves us. And that we would be aware that the God who loves us is a God of providence, who only has good for us. And even though we don't always see you working in our individual lives, in our family's life, in the life in our city, in our country, in this world, God, we know that you're working your goodwill and purpose out. And finally, God, I pray that we would know that, um, that the victory's been won, that we've been delivered. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of your beloved Son. And so God, would you give us the strength to walk in those truths for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.